On this podcast, we talk a lot about how blood sugar balance matters in PCOS because insulin resistance is one of the main root cause drivers of PCOS symptoms. But does blood sugar balance matter for other hormones too? You bet it does. In this episode, we'll talk about the basics of carbohydrate metabolism, ways blood sugar affects other hormones, how to evaluate for blood sugar issues, and how to balance blood sugar with nutrition and lifestyle. Let's dive in. Buckle up for some biology. Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. First of all, what is blood sugar? Blood sugar or plasma glucose is the amount of sugar in your bloodstream at any given time. When you eat a meal containing carbohydrates, any carbohydrates, they need to be broken down to their simplest forms in order to be absorbed by the body. This process starts in the mouth where the enzyme salivary amylase starts to break down starches. But the bulk of carbohydrate digestion happens in the small intestines with the aid of the enzyme pancreatic amylase. The first step is to break larger polysaccharides like starch down into disaccharides like sucrose, lactose, and maltose. Although we also eat sucrose directly in the form of table sugar and lactose directly in dairy products, so those foods skip that first step of breakdown. These disaccharides continue to travel down through the small intestine where they reach the brush border enzymes that break disaccharides down into monosaccharides or simple sugars, glucose, fructose, and galactose. These molecules are now small enough to pass through the lining of the small intestine and directly into the bloodstream. Fructose absorption is actually a complicated process that we are not going to talk about in this episode, although it would probably be good for me to do a future episode on the connection between fructose and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, um, but I don't want to get too off track here. Back to the glucose. So what happens next is, you know, now that the glucose is in the bloodstream, is that our body can either transport that glucose into our cells to use for immediate fuel, 
or we can store any extra in the form of glycogen in our muscles and our liver. Once those two storage areas are full, any leftover glucose is converted to fat and stored on the body as well fat. And just FYI, I'm not going to quiz you on this or anything, but the liver can only store about 80 to 100 grams of glycogen at a time, and the muscles can store about 500 grams, although there's a range for muscle storage, which depends on how much muscle you have and how well it's trained to store that glycogen. So that's about 320 to 400 calories of energy stored in the liver and about 2,000 calories of energy in the muscles at any given time. Additionally, there are around four grams of glucose circulating in the blood at any given time. Factors that can affect glycogen storage and blood glucose levels include how many carbs you're eating, how long it's been since your last meal, and the intensity and duration of any recent physical activity. So let's get back to that blood sugar. So what happens when you eat carbs and glucose enters your bloodstream? Well, in response, your pancreas releases insulin. Insulin is like a little helper molecule that helps glucose get into the cells for energy. So anytime glucose goes up, insulin also goes up. They go hand in hand. Your cells recognize the insulin and let the glucose inside where it undergoes a process called glycolysis, which is glucose breakdown, um, where glucose is broken down into smaller molecules called pyruvate. Then the pyruvate passes into the mitochondria. If you remember back to science class, um, mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell where it forms acetyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA enters into the Krebs cycle, which I won't repeat here because it's far more information than you need, but just know that it's a sequence of reactions that results in the creation of ATP or cellular energy. And yes, all dietitians study the Krebs cycle multiple times during our education. And trust me, you really only want to be getting your nutrition advice from trained professionals who understand this process. Now the cell has energy to do its jobs and your blood sugar levels have gone back to normal and all is well with the world. Of course, this process doesn't happen smoothly with insulin resistance. With insulin resistance, your cells ignore insulin signals. The glucose stays in your bloodstream and your pancreas makes even more insulin in response because your blood sugar levels are still high. In the meantime, your cells are literally starving for energy, and that's what leads to those killer carb and sugar cravings. So that's the basic gist of how carbohydrates become energy in the body. It's important to have a basic understanding of this process so you can see where we can optimize this process. So let's switch gears a bit and talk about how blood sugar affects hormones. First, I want to talk about the way that high blood sugar affects hormones. High glucose raises insulin levels. First, as we've just talked about, high glucose raises insulin levels. You may not think of it that way, but insulin is actually a hormone. 
Chronically high insulin over time increases the risk of developing obesity, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, and may decrease health span and life expectancy. So let's talk about insulin and weight. Insulin is anabolic or a growth promoting hormone. Insulin blocks the breakdown of fat, increases the production of fat, and tells the liver to make more glucose. Studies have shown that even modest increases in fasting insulin promote fat production and weight gain in the body. High insulin levels are also considered to be an early predictor of later metabolic dysfunction. High fasting insulin has been found to raise the risk for development of type 2 diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which can impact hormone metabolism, and raise blood pressure. Next, high insulin raises testosterone levels. As we talk about in PCOS, insulin resistance is a major driver of high androgen levels. It does this in two ways. When insulin is high, it tells the ovaries to make more testosterone. High insulin also tells the liver to make less sex hormone binding globulin, which does exactly what it sounds like, and it gloms on to sex hormones in the bloodstream. With less sex hormone binding globulin, free levels of testosterone are higher. Free hormones are free to roam around the body, causing problems. High androgens can cause symptoms like oily skin and hair, acne, male pattern hair loss, and mood swings. So now let's switch gears and talk about the ways that low blood sugar affects hormones. Low glucose raises cortisol, then cortisol raises glucose and insulin. So from an evolutionary standpoint, think about what would happen if our ancestors faced a threat. Let's just say they were minding their business, picking some berries, and suddenly a saber-toothed tiger appeared. There are two appropriate responses. They're going to fight that saber-toothed tiger, or they're going to run for their life, aka fight or flight. The adrenals release stress hormones in sequence that allow us to deal with this threat. First, epinephrine or adrenaline tells the liver to start making more glucose so more is available for the muscles to use. Their heart rate goes up. They start breathing faster. Every cell in their body is alive and tingling and ready to go. This is a good thing. We want to have that fuel we need to fight or run from a life-threatening event. So let's say that there wasn't actually a saber-toothed tiger there. Maybe they saw a rock that looked like a saber-toothed tiger. I don't know. At that point, they sigh a big relief. The threat is gone. Epinephrine levels drop, and they go back to peacefully picking berries. On the other hand, what happens if there was a saber-toothed tiger? Our brave ancestor fought off that tiger and killed it. And then they turned around only to realize that that was just a baby tiger and now mama tiger is angry. And so the period of stress continues. That's when cortisol kicks in. And cortisol also tells your liver to keep making sugar and keep pumping it into the bloodstream. So obviously, we no longer live in the time of saber-toothed tigers. 
But here's the kicker. Your brain and your body do not know the difference between a saber-toothed tiger and, say, running late for work or a looming deadline or the cortisol spike you can get from social media. And that's a problem. When we're constantly in fight or flight mode over things that are not actually life-threatening, our livers are constantly making glucose and pumping it into our bloodstreams. I think most of us are familiar with psychological or mind-related stressors, but we tend to forget the physiological or body-related stressors. One of the biggest physiological stressors is low blood sugar. Low blood sugar can happen when we skip meals, like when we skip breakfast and just drink coffee instead. It can happen when we eat an unbalanced meal that's high in carbs or sugar that spikes our blood sugar, which then results in a crash into the low zone. Low blood sugar can happen if we exercise in a fasted state. Alcohol can cause low blood sugar. Diabetes medications can cause low blood sugar. Obviously, that's their purpose. Anyway, my point is that there are many causes of low blood sugar, but they all have the same result, a spike in cortisol, which triggers the production of blood sugar by the liver that gets released into the bloodstream to remedy the situation. Or low blood sugar triggers the pancreas to release glucagon, which is the opposite hormone of insulin, which taps into those glucose stores in our liver and muscles we talked about earlier. Our body likes to keep blood sugar within a tightly regulated range because our brains need that glucose for fuel. So if the brain starts to think that its fuel is running out, it's going to tell you to make more fast. Chronically high cortisol alone can lead to diabetes, high blood pressure, and other risks for heart disease and stroke. But high cortisol also affects hormones, in particular, thyroid hormones and progesterone. When cortisol goes up, thyroid hormones and progesterone go down. Low progesterone can make PMS and perimenopause worse, shorten the luteal phase, and result in estrogen-dominant symptoms like pre-period migraines, painful breasts, bloating, heavy bleeding, and cramps. So it's very important to work on lowering cortisol if it's chronically high. And one of the ways that we can do this is by keeping our blood sugar balanced. I also want to talk about the impact that some hormones can have on blood glucose. First of all, having appropriate amounts of estrogen keeps blood sugar regulated by protecting against insulin resistance. In the first half of your cycle, when estrogen is the dominant sex hormone, it helps optimize your insulin sensitivity. On the other hand, when estrogen is low, that increases insulin resistance. Normally, estrogen helps keep insulin resistance in check, but when estrogen is low, which happens unpredictably during the perimenopause years and then declines during menopause, insulin resistance starts to go up. That's part of the reason why type 2 diabetes in women tends to be diagnosed in the 40s and 50s. Not for nothing, but low estrogen also increases cortisol, which leads to that spike in blood sugar that we just talked about. 
In the second half of the cycle, progesterone moderately increases blood sugar and insulin resistance. Think about the reason why here. Progesterone, as in pro-pregnancy or pro-gestation. Pregnancy is naturally a slightly insulin-resistant state because the body prioritizes the fuel you eat being diverted to the fetus first. If you are not pregnant, don't worry about the excess glucose at this time of the month, since progesterone also raises metabolism slightly. Your temperature goes up and you're burning more calories, which is why after ovulation, you may find yourself feeling hungrier than usual. Hey there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS. And you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS. The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are in a restaurant, getting takeout, at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. That's all the connections between blood sugar and hormone imbalances, or at least all the major players. So now let's talk about how to know if you might have blood sugar imbalances. Symptoms of high blood sugar include thirst and frequent urination, unexplained weight loss, fatigue, and increased appetite. Other symptoms can include blurred vision, wounds or cuts that are slow to heal, and tingling or numbness in the hands and feet. Symptoms of low blood sugar include rapid heartbeat, shaking, sweating, anxiety, irritability, you know, hanger, uh, dizziness, and hunger. Symptoms of high insulin may include cravings for carbs and sugar, weight gain that doesn't seem to line up with what you're eating or how much you're moving, excessive hunger and thirst, difficulties concentrating, uh, fatigue, especially after a meal, and episodes of hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. There are tests uh, you can have done to measure for blood sugar regulation and insulin resistance. A fasting plasma glucose tells us how much glucose is in your bloodstream after fasting, usually for a period of 10 to 12 hours. A normal level is between 70 and 99 milligrams per deciliter. 
However, this test is done at a single point in time, and I never put much stock into a single fasting glucose level because so much that we do can affect this number. For example, um, the meal you ate for dinner the night before, how well you slept the night before, when you last exercised, and you know whether you were stressed to the max as you were dashing to the lab for your test after not having breakfast. So hemoglobin A1C is another test that gives us kind of a better idea of what your blood glucose looks like over time. What hemoglobin A1C measures is the amount of sugar stuck to your red blood cells. Since red blood cells only survive around three months, this test is a good proxy for the average amount of glucose in your blood over the last three months. Under 5.7% is normal, 57 to 6.4% may indicate prediabetes, and 6.5% and up may indicate diabetes. I say may because in order to receive a diagnosis like that, you really need to have those numbers confirmed with additional testing. You can't diagnose off a single lab test alone. Fasting insulin can also be tested and a calculation can be performed to determine your HOMA-IR score. Um, the HOMA-IR can help you see where you fall on the spectrum of insulin resistance. You can actually Google HOMA-IR calculator and if you have your fasting glucose and fasting insulin numbers, you can plug it into the equation to see what your HOMA-IR is. A more invasive test, but one that is recommended during pregnancy and for PCOS is the two-hour oral glucose tolerance test, where you are given a dose of glucose in a drink, and then your blood sugar is tested at regular intervals. Finally, something that's becoming trendy in the wellness world is wearing a continuous glucose meter so you can get to know your own blood sugar patterns in real time and see how different foods or different combinations of foods affect you personally. This is not something that would be covered by insurance unless you have diabetes. It can be pricey and it may be more information than you need or want. Um, that being said, I got to use one for myself for 10 days and I, I really found the data fascinating um, and got to kind of play with meals and snacks that I eat regularly to see how they're actually affecting my blood sugar. So now that we've covered the what, the why, and who might want to seek further evaluation for blood sugar issues, let's turn to the fun part, the how. Let's start with nutrition recommendations for balancing blood sugar. A little bit more background here. All macronutrients affect blood sugar and as a result, insulin differently. Carbohydrates raise blood sugar and insulin. Carbohydrates is kind of a, a big general category, and there are different types of carbohydrates. Slow or complex carbs like those found in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes raise blood sugar slowly. These slow carbs contain fiber, which results in slowing the digestion and the absorption of carbs. 
On the other hand, simple carbs like refined greens, fruit juices, and added sugars that are found in sweets or sugar-sweetened beverages raise blood sugar very quickly. Protein raises blood sugar and insulin only slightly, and protein is digested more slowly compared with carbs, which slows down the digestive process of the carbs it is eaten with. Fat doesn't raise blood sugar or insulin at all, and fat slows the transit of digested food from the stomach to the intestines, so the blood sugar spike from any carbs eaten with fat happens more gradually than when eaten in an easy-to-digest meal. Plus, fat keeps us satiated and it tastes good. So my first tip for balanced blood sugar is to never eat carbs alone or always combine carbs with protein, fat, and fiber for more stable blood sugar. I see far too many people grabbing a banana or an English muffin on the way to work for breakfast, having a piece of fruit alone as a mid-morning snack, skimping on the protein at lunch, and then wondering why they're ravenous and exhausted when they get home from work. Balancing your blood sugar and fueling your body in a balanced way early in the day sets the tone for the whole day. On that note, we do need to be mindful of total carbohydrate content of a meal. Carb tolerance is individual, but in general, you want to keep your starchy carbs to around a quarter of your plate and consider the total carb content not only on your plate, but also including drinks, dessert, etc. It all adds up. My third tip is no skipping meals, especially breakfast and lunch. Remember how we talked about how low blood sugar raises cortisol levels? Well, cortisol levels are already at their highest point early in the day, two hours after waking up. So if you're struggling with high cortisol, the last thing you want to do is skip breakfast and make your cortisol even higher or worse, skip breakfast and have coffee, which is only adding fuel to the cortisol fire. And finally, my fourth nutrition tip for balanced blood sugar is to be mindful of added sugar and refined carbohydrates. There's no need to cut these foods out entirely, but the vast majority of your diet should be made up of real whole foods. Now let's talk about the impact of lifestyle on blood sugar. When I talk about lifestyle, I'm generally talking about exercise, sleep, and stress. So let's start with exercise, which has a positive effect on lowering blood sugar and improving insulin sensitivity. In particular, resistance training or weightlifting has been shown to have the biggest impact on blood sugar levels and insulin. When we lift weights, we are training our muscles to use insulin better to get glucose into the muscle cells. Similarly, walking after a meal, even for 10 minutes, has been shown to have a positive impact on blood sugar levels. When we walk, we are using the large muscles of our legs and buttocks, and large muscles use more glucose. So try getting out for a 10-minute walk after lunch or dinner if you want to improve your blood sugar. 
Sleep has an enormous connection to blood sugar. Not getting enough sleep has been linked to insulin resistance, not only carb and sugar cravings, but to actually eating more on days after you didn't get enough sleep, which explains why not getting enough sleep has actually been linked to weight gain. Studies generally show that you need about six and a half to seven hours minimum, although I like to encourage people to aim for the seven to nine hour range. Stress. We talked a lot about how stress hormones directly impact blood sugar and vice versa. Um, I'm not going to tell you to lower your stress because that's pretty much impossible. There are always going to be sources of stress in your life. But I am going to tell you to look at, you know, maybe where you're giving more than you should. Maybe you need better boundaries with work or family. Maybe there are compromises you can make, such as working from home one to two days a week, if that's an option for you. Maybe you need a go-to plan for managing your response to stress when stress is high. This is totally individual and what works for one person may not work for you, but brainstorm a list of things you like to do or a list of things that you'd be willing to try and pull that out next time that you're feeling the pressure. Some of mine are taking deep breathing breaks at the top of each hour, lying down and popping on a perfect 10-minute long calming song between clients, singing in the car, and petting my cats. I also try to incorporate joy and fun into every day, which may include things like reading for fun, watching mindless TV, or laughing with my husband. If you're having trouble identifying your stress triggers or developing coping mechanisms to deal with them, I highly recommend reaching out to a licensed mental health counselor who can help you with that. Key takeaways for this episode, blood sugar balance affects sex hormones and other hormones in the body, even if you don't have PCOS. Far too many people are on the blood sugar roller coaster every day and it's having ripple effects on their health. If you think that you might have issues, reach out to your doctor for further evaluation. Fortunately, blood sugar balance is something that we have a lot of control over with nutrition and lifestyle. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. See you next time. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode, and in the meantime, stay balanced.